This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF 91.3. A listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Callums. This is the opening day for the 123rd annual Tawnytown Grape Festival. Carnival rides, the annual Grape Stomp, free live music, and more start the festival that lasts through Saturday night. On Ozarks this hour, a conversation about racism, Christianity, and reparations. The fourth episode of KUAF's limited-run podcast, The R Word, was recorded live at St. James Missionary Baptist Church in Fayetteville last week. Podcast host Lowell Taylor led a conversation with four local black Christian leaders. We'll hear an excerpt from that conversation ahead. Also last week, a report from the Northwest Arkansas Council was released detailing the continued rise in diversity in Northwest Arkansas. The study shows that by the end of 2026, ethnic and racial minorities will represent one-third of the region's population. The council, along with its Engage NWA program, is advocating for the region to become a welcoming and inclusive location. On Friday, the Northwest Arkansas Council and Engage NWA hosted a webinar about diversity in the region as part of its Onward Ozark series. Margaret LeMaster, the executive director of Engage NWA, offered an overview of that Northwest Arkansas Council report. Our racially and ethnically diverse population increased from less than 5% in 1990 to nearly 30% in 2021. Um, the largest racially and ethnically diverse population in the region are um, Hispanics and Latinos, which represent 17% of our population, and that's up from 1% in 1990. Two of our five largest school districts are already majority students of color, and there's a third that's very close to reaching that point. Uh, many of us probably already know that Springdale is our most diverse city, um, which represents 53%. And in our schools, going back to that diversity in our schools, more than 90 countries are represented in our schools and 87 languages are spoken. And if you really look at the diversity within each of the districts, you see that it's in some cases, even largely, much larger than in the communities um, where they are. And it really provides a clear picture of the future of our region uh, beyond the projections that we make in 2026, as these students in the schools are really our future leaders here in Northwest Arkansas. LeMaster says the report is part of a continuing commitment to report on population trends in the community. She says she wants it to be used as a tool for the community to better understand how the region is changing and really inspire leaders to increase efforts to create more welcoming and inclusive organizations and to impact our broader region as a whole. Young Low Branch, one of the participants in the Friday webinar, is the founder and president of Arkansas Association of Asian Businesses. She says an advantage to growing diversity is the connections that can be made to other parts of the world. If you're, you know, thinking about exploring overseas in Asia, then if you're, you're a local, then you still need to start somewhere. So our organization is really about everybody has an interest within Arkansas and Asia. So thinking, you know, um, the other way, sometimes we feel we are the hosts. In the host mindset, everybody is incomer. But think about ourselves. If we go to another culture, go to Asia, go overseas, we are the you know, the, the, the visitors were thinking about moving there ourselves and what kind of challenges um, or, or um, you know, appeals that brings, right? So I think we're all just 
you know, things need to, um, you know, in a big picture, as, as long as I run this organization, I think uh, I want our community to think both ways, uh, put ourselves in the mindset of hosting and also visiting. Chef Judy Tatios, a six-year resident of Northwest Arkansas and a Marshallese American born and raised in California, says she first decided to move here after visiting for a traditional Marshallese celebration in the month of May. From when I uh, first came out here, it was very, very, uh, very, very plain out here. And uh, I, when I moved out here, I just thought, saw that uh, this is a land of opportunities. I was like uh, probably like California back in the days where um, it's built, it, it built up. And right now it is what it is. And uh, Northwest Arkansas is starting to be like that. She operates Street Yahweh Yulala, serving Marshallese cuisine. While she says Northwest Arkansas's growing diversity can increase opportunities, there are also challenges like consistently available ingredients for her work. It took about a week for just one cooler to get to me from the Marshall Islands. It has to fly from the Marshall Islands to Hawaii, and then it comes out here if I get lucky. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a uh, the reason why it's so important um, is because there's a process to everything that is done with the Marshallese cooking. I myself is still learning most of it. I grew up on the food. Luckily, you know, um, I had family going back and forth to the Marshall Islands and they were bringing it over here. Um, stuff like pandan, pandanus, uh, there's breadfruit some, in some regions, places, but there's uh, rarely any here. And it's, um, and when it's here, it's gone right away. You know, once one Marshallese knows, the whole community knows and, you know, they're, they're limited. Francisco Herrero, the president of Banco C, a division of Signature Bank of Arkansas, has lived in Rogers for more than six years and has been visiting the area for 11 years before that. And I have seen the incredible growth uh, of the area and I have seen how the area has become increasingly uh, diverse. So we are here to support the community and, uh, and to support the uh, other organizations in fostering economic growth for, for our diverse community. He says the growing diversity is exciting and a chance to elevate the quality of life, but communities and businesses have to be ready to be inclusive and welcoming. The opportunities for everybody, for every group, need to be fair and equal. If we leave uh, some segment of the, of the population behind, or if we don't support everybody, uh, or we offer the, everybody the same opportunities, uh, as a group, we will not, uh, and as a region, we will not grow and we will not elevate. You can find a complete copy of the Northwest Arkansas Council's 2022 Diversity Report at nwacouncil.org. The webinar last week, moderated by Randy Wilburn, the host of I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, you can hear that podcast at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. Hi, this is Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Now, you can't see me right now, but know that I'm smiling. I'm smiling because it's Member Appreciation Week here at KUAF, and I get to say thank you for being a member. We can't do what we do without you. So thank you for supporting news, insightful conversations, and entertainment for everyone in our listening area. Because of you, what you hear on KUAF and all the ways you get to hear it is possible. Governor Asa Hutchinson says he'll wait until at least November before announcing whether he will run for president. The governor spoke yesterday during a forum by The Washington Post. When asked about former President Donald Trump, Governor Hutchinson said Republicans need to move on 
from the former president. But he noted that will be a challenge. Any candidate that wants to be president, president has to be able to uh, identify with the issues that uh, Donald Trump is able to drive. I mean, these are real concerns. Governor Hutchinson said his party is focused on rising crime, border security, foreign policy, and inflation. In April, Governor Hutchinson, who is term limited, visited New Hampshire, one of the first states to vote in presidential primaries. So far, the governor has only said he's considering a run and that he wants to have a say in the direction of the Republican Party. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Arkansas Times and the Arkansas Cannabis Industry Association present the Medical Marijuana Health Expo Saturday, August 27th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Northwest Arkansas Convention Center in Rogers. Medical professionals, pharmacists, and local bud tenders will lead seminars on treating a variety of symptoms with medical marijuana. Details and tickets available at centralarkansatickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The limited-run KUAF podcast, The R Word, a discussion about reparations, is nearing its conclusion. The fourth episode was a live recording at St. James Missionary Baptist Church with a conversation about racism, Christianity, and Northwest Arkansas. Podcast host Lowell Taylor invited four local black Christian leaders to talk about their experiences. The conversation and the question-and-answer period that followed lasted for more than 90 minutes. We want to share some of the opening minutes with the panelists with you. The panelists were Dustin McGowan, Reverend Stephen Ivey, Reverend Suzanne Bridges, and the first person we'll hear from, Chris Seawood. He describes himself as a father of four, a husband, a youth pastor, and gospel musician. He told the audience at St. James Missionary Baptist Church last week that the first time he was called the N-word was in Northwest Arkansas. Um, in Northwest Arkansas was the first time that I was told to take my black a double S back to Africa and called a monkey. Um, and so I'm here because I'm passionate and it did something to my heart because the guy that I saw wasn't a dude that was dressed down and you know, he didn't look like a, he looked like my CEO. He looked like my boss. And so my heart, <clears throat> when I, when that happened to me, I said to myself, if a man that looks like him can say that to me, I wonder how many other, and let me be more specific, if a white man like him can say that to somebody like me, I wonder how many other white men that look like him, that look professional, that look um, very put together are thinking that and have those attitudes. And so uh, I'm here to attack the, the systemic racism and oppression um, that we as black people oftentimes face. Sorry I took so long. Um, I'm Suzanne Bridges, <clears throat> um, minister here um, at St. James, used to be on staff, um, and um, currently um, endeavoring to lead the evangelism ministry. Um, and, you know, like so many others, um, the year of 2020 was such a um, challenging time um, filled with so much um, and unlike some other millennials, um, I, I didn't, I never, uh, felt that I lived in a post-racial society. Um, and I, and I, I owe that to my mother, um, and her educating me. My mother is 73 years old. My dad is 76 years old. Um, uh, my mother was a part of her high school class that first integrated Fort Smith, um, which is where I'm from. And so um, 
you know, being taught at home um, in terms of race relations and my history. Um, and like Stephen, I mean, for a lot of us, we're not from this area where most folks are transplants. or, And so uh, it, it wasn't until, um, you know, my first year here at the University of Arkansas where I realized that um, growing up, I lived so segregated. Um, for, for those of you who are familiar with Fort Smith, we have North Side and South Side. Um, and I would often get asked all the time, where'd you graduate from? You must have graduated from Southside um, because Southside was majority white and majority of those students went on to go to college, whereas those from Northside, which is where I graduated from, thank God, um, did not go to college. But I did, praise God, and graduated from the University of Arkansas. Um, and of course, as always in class, I would oftentimes be the only black. I worked at Arvest Bank. I was the only black that worked at that bank. Um, and so even uh, sitting here on this stage being the only female, um, I am used to being uncomfortable. I am used to being the only one. Um, and so again, in, in 2020, it highlighted so much in, in our country, so much in our society that folks have turned a blind eye to, in particular the church. Um, and so um, I was able to observe more so the church's response, um, the local church's response in this area. Um, and so why am I sitting here today? Um, I carry a burden for um, young people, the generations coming up, as well as my own generation, um, that I have seen leave the church, that I have seen leave the faith, um, that I have seen turn to um, African spirituality and cults um, because they are so traumatized and hurt by the conditions of the society and, and the church's lack of response to that. Um, and so as a result, they have lost their faith in Jesus. Um, and so I, I have that burden um, in which to uh, share Jesus with those who um, have been hurt and traumatized. Uh, my name is Dustin McGowan. Uh, I am uh, from Milwaukee. I'm a husband, uh, my wife Joy, somewhere in the crowd, and three children, Micah, Malachi, and a new one, Mercy, uh, is in our midst today. Uh, the reason, and, and I'm a pastor, church planner, diversity consultant, all types of things. And uh, I've been participating in these kinds of conversations for uh, 10, 12 years now. And uh, growing up, I grew up in an overwhelmingly majority black context. And so uh, these conversations weren't really a part of that uh, experience because uh, what's understood doesn't have to be explained. And uh, it wasn't really until I went to college um, in the northern Chicago suburbs at a school called Trinity International uh, that I really became, you know, you know, face to face with a lot of the disparity and uh, the reality of living a, a different experience than people who are in close proximity to me. Um, but also uh, engaging in that uh, reality within the church. Um, and uh, a really pivotal moment is 2012 for me um, in uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin. 
uh, when a lot of these conversations uh, begin to really pick up and become more prominent. Um, and many churches begin to uh, pursue visions of multicultural, multi-ethnic churches uh, uh, as a response to that. Um, and, and, and being here 10 years after that event um, and exploring where have we come, not just in the last uh, two years since George Floyd, but in a, a decade since Trayvon Martin, um, and uh, many a decades uh, of the history of uh, racial injustice in our country. And we asked the question of where we are as a church, uh, uh, nationally and locally, um, in our response. Um, and, uh, and personally, in my own experience, I've, I've, in my work in this, in this space, I've, have experienced a lot of trauma. Uh, as a result of the work that I do, um, and, and struggling sometimes to hold on to the hope of the vision of the work, um, but nevertheless uh, still see that there's a, a very important need uh, for people to participate in the work of restoring that which is broken um, and doing it in meaningful ways. And so uh, I, I just humbled that I, I get to participate in, in that process. Well, good evening. My name is uh, Chris Seawood. I am husband to Miranda, sitting back there in the back, and father to three boys, Caleb, Micah, and Joshua. Uh, I uh, also had the privilege for nine years serving here as the director of operations. Uh, I've been the follower of Jesus for gosh, 28 years, um, ordained a minister in 1998, uh, licensed in, I believe, 2000-something. I'm getting old. It's hard to keep up with numbers. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, why am I here tonight? Partially uh, because my dear friend, and now whom I consider a brother, uh, Lowell, asked me to be here. I also get to share the stage with my dear brothers and my sister um, tonight. I consider it a privilege. Um, also, again, to, um, as I honestly, the last few years, as a, a lot of them have said, but me personally, I found myself not so much in what I would call a crisis of faith, but what I have really considered a deconstruction of my faith, um, really searching and finding what is the essence of faith, what is true faith, what does it truly mean to be a Christ follower, particularly in this context that we find ourselves in, in this uh, particular context in America with so much turmoil um, racially, economically, uh, with all the injustice that we see uh, across America going on. What does it truly mean to be a Christ follower? What does true justice mean? Um, what does it truly mean to uh, see true shalom um, to be brought about um, in this context as Christ followers, as people of God's kingdom? Um, so for me, it's uh, going through this deconstruction phase so that I can reconstruct my faith as I walk through my life daily as I come in context uh, in contact with people 
with various contexts, through various socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and through various lifestyles and impact their lives so that that true shalom is seen and felt through them and that true love of God is felt and impacted by all. Um, and to come alongside people like Alol Taylor as they are truly being called out prophetically to go back into a people group and speak truth to their particular context, um, which I believe he's called to do. I can't speak truth to a larger white audience. You all, as much as we're here tonight, there's a particular truth. I can say it, but it may not necessarily be received from me, but there is a particular prophetic call that um, I believe will be received from um, if we're being honest, there's a there's a truth that'll be heard from somebody that uh, if you're more familiar with, it'll be more readily received. So um, so if I'm here and I can help undergird what he's saying so that it's more readily received, then I'm happy to be able to help undergird um, Lowell in that fashion. Thank you all for those introductions. Um, in her book, The Elusive Dream, Corey Edwards writes that interracial churches work to the extent that they make white people feel comfortable. And I think that as a rule, that's true. There are exceptions, um, but as a rule, that's true. Um, Jamar Tisby in his book, The Color of Compromise, writes, there can be no reconciliation without confession, without repentance, without truth. And so my hope for us tonight is that as best we're able, we tell truths that may make us uncomfortable, um, but that are truths. So that's what we'll endeavor to do together. Um, so now let's talk about what you all have heard in previous episodes of the podcast, and I'm hoping that you listen to them. Uh, as a reminder, in episode one, I introduced myself and previewed the podcast. In episode two, we talked to Greg Thompson about his book, Reparations, and in episode three, we talked to Jamar Tisby about the Witness Foundation, the arc of racial justice, Leave Loud, a number of things. Um, now, not, not all y'all have to answer this question, but I would love to hear from you all, especially for those here tonight or perhaps listening at a later date who have not heard the episodes. Um, what did you all hear? What do you think is important um, for people in our community to understand? Uh, in, the, in the podcast, Dr. Thompson, uh, he talks about the, the story that he opens his book with um, about a, a freed uh, slave whose master, uh, former master writes to him and tries to compel him to come back and to uh, support him as his plantation has fallen into chaos. Um, and the former slave tells him that uh, no matter how much uh, love and care he is communicating in word uh, about how he feels to him, that uh, in order for him to actually take that seriously, that he needs to be repaid for all of the theft of labor um, that he incurred over his years of uh, working on the plantation. Um, and I think it's vital that we, you know, as you hash out even, you know, that concept of returning what was stolen, 
um, this sense that uh, do we feel the need as we look about our world, as we see our even our brothers and sisters in Christ to actually make things right, to make things whole, right? Or are we content as long as people say, uh, I forgive you, and moving on as if nothing ever happened? Um, Are we compelled that when we have done wrong or seen wrong or have benefited from the wrong committed by others to actually make those things right before I try to initiate the restored relationship with the person? Do I fix what has caused uh, the relationship to be broken in the first place? And I think that's uh, the, the place that we find a lot of our dialogue around racial justice and, um, and uh, approaching the topic of, re- of reparations is that oftentimes that uh, we haven't gotten to a place to where we actually want to see things whole, right? We simply want to feel better about our role in the system. And if I've said enough or done enough to appease my own guilty conscience, do I, can I now be content to keep moving on and not think about it anymore versus the person who has said, no, this is really fractured and broken. This needs to be made right. And if it is made right, the restored relationship comes into play, right, as a result of that um, and not simply uh, the, the guilt alleviation. But it's bigger than that. It's about the person being made right, not me feeling good. That letter um, written by uh, Jordan Anderson and just the, the audacity, right, just the sheer absurdity <laughs> to have um, this slave master who tried to kill him, as a matter of fact, so, you know, tried to kill him, as noted um, by him um, in the letter to then ask for him to come back because he needs him. Um, and so go out there and read that letter. Um, history is so important. Um, I remember in my youth thinking, um, I hate history. Like it doesn't matter. Right. It's not a big deal. I want to focus on present day and the future. I don't care about history. Is knowing about history going to help me in college? Is it going to help me secure a business job where I make lots of money? I don't think so. Um, And as I've gotten older, um, I have a newfound appreciation um, of history. Um, And not just in my age, but in my Christian walk. Um, You know, we as Christians read and we study the Bible. Um, and the Bible is filled with history. And we, we don't disregard that history, right? No matter how unpleasant it is, um, it's filled with rape and incest and murders and killings and all sorts of things. But we don't stray from reading the Old Testament or just reading the Bible in, in itself. Yet, for some reason in this country, we want to forget history. 
We want to um, not acknowledge history, and we want to focus on today and the future. And we do that in the hopes of then I'm not obligated, I'm not accountable for what's being done in the past. Um, and, and so that's the attitude um, that, that I see displayed amongst whites is, you know, I'm not accountable for that, but I am taking advantage of current systems and structures every single day. But I'm not accountable <laughs> for anything in the past. Um, and so, you know, with the discussion of reparations, for those who are so daunted by it and terrified of it and, and afraid of it and are fearful of it, because that's what it is, it's fear, um, you know, starting from just the history and not thinking that it's just, oh, it's just this discussion of black people wanting a handout, because that's not what it is. Um, and so I appreciate um, the book, Reparations, um, written by Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan. I appreciate it. And, um, I enjoyed listening to the highlights from Greg himself about the history and, and the reason behind it. An excerpt from the live recording of the fourth episode of the R Word podcast produced by KUAF. There's much, much more conversation from that night that you can hear by looking for the R Word at KUAF.com. Podcast host Lowell Taylor talked with Reverend Suzanne Bridges, Reverend Stephen Ivey, Dustin McGowan, and Chris Seawood for that discussion. This is Ozarks at Large. Bobby Hopper's influence on Northwest Arkansas is immense. The interstate that creates a corridor through the region also connects us to parts beyond our region, but he leaves a major imprint on all of Arkansas. Bobby Hopper died Saturday. Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, asked John Brummett, political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, about the legacy of Bobby Hopper. Well, first anecdotes are the best way to describe a person, and I remember shortly after, uh, uh, in the 80s, uh, when Bill Clinton surprised a lot of us by appointing this person we didn't know uh, as a political power broker to the Highway Commission, there was a roast in uh, Rogers for uh, Bobby Hopper. I was up there with others. We spent most of our time, as you might imagine, making jokes about each other because Bobby Hopper was not a well-known, ripe figure for jokes. But when it came his time to respond, he said, I don't really... uh, like to talk bad about people and I don't really, I'm not all that good at at public speaking. Uh, So I thought I'd do this and he hit the power button on a jam box and got out in front of the stage and danced a powerful athletic jig. That's, uh, that was what he did. He was a man without pretense. He was unsophisticated seeming. He was uh, country and proud to be. uh, And uh, he was what he was. Uh, And what he was, it turned out, was a man who was sneaky smart and hard working and when he said my i'm going to get this uh, interstate finished through here uh although it was a very challenging series of projects involving big money uh he he meant it and he got it done and now his name i think uh, will live longer than any of our names because i think one of the most quintessential arkansas things to do 
is uh, being an SUV driving north on 540 toward Fayetteville with Razorback pennants hanging from your antenna, going through the Bobby Hopper Tunnel to get to the football game. And you and you see the Bobby Hopper Tunnel and will ad infinitum as a... Uh, when you, when you go through that tunnel, you're in the stretch run. When you come out of that, you're in the stretch run, run to hog football or hog basketball, as it were. Uh, and, and so he's he's rewarded for uh, in perpetuity for a job well done. I remember, uh, uh, I'm old enough to remember going to Fayetteville by taking 71. And US 71, north of Alma. And the first thing you encounter is a big sign telling you how many people have recently been killed on this stretch of highway and saying, don't <clears throat> don't you be next. And you know the curves on that thing, straight up hills and then straight back down. And I'm talking to an economist at a bar in Fayetteville in the early mid-80s, and he said, can you, can you uh, just think about how uh, economically uh, successful this area is with probably the worst road access in the country, uh, uh, certainly from, uh, from the South. And he said, and, and not only that, but but it's trucking. J.B. Hunt and, of course, Tyson, depending on the trucking. Uh, imagine what we'll do if we get that freeway finished. Well, now we don't have to imagine, do we? Uh, it's, it's one of the hottest, most thriving, promising, still promising places in the country, and that highway had a lot to do with it. So, uh, uh, Bobby Hopper, sort of, uh, sort of sneaky smart, didn't may not have looked the part of highway commissioner, but served longer than anybody. Only man to do two stints as chairman. Left on there <clears throat> so that he could complete the work he was committed to doing, and he was the kind of guy when he said he'd get the job done, he did, and a incurably pleasant fellow. Uh, you're talking about you're young enough to remember taking Highway 71. See, I'm young enough and reckless enough to remember I would take the pig trail to get to Fayetteville because it was a lot more fun to drive on the pig trail. It, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, that was the other route. But now we've got uh, now we got the freeway. Yes. Largely thanks to Mr. Hopper. There you go. All right. Democrats have pitched a teacher pay raise plan that uh, until they secure 75 percent of the votes in both chambers is not going anywhere, but they've at least thrown something of substance out there. Uh, it's not going to make the special session call unless they get those votes lined up. Is this just, hey, we're going to put some good policy out there and uh, hope that um, we get some credit for doing that with voters or you think this thing has any modicum of a chance of getting on the special session call? Well, I hate to be pessimistic toward the Democrats, particularly when they're trying this hard and doing this well tactically, but I don't see, I'm, I mean, Roby, you and I see the Republican legislature, there's there's very little chance uh, for uh, teacher raises to happen. They're going to cut uh, income taxes instead and uh, only. Uh, but I was talking to some, happened to be in a little social setting with some Democratic folks uh, over the, uh, well, late last week, and 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 this, the discussion was we finally got an issue, and we finally capitalized on it, uh, which is not to say they're going to make policy. It's to, it's to say 
they've got a, they've got hold of a good issue. They thank Asa Hutchinson for it. Actually, they said, you know, we, we wouldn't be in this position if he hadn't proposed this in the first place. And then their legislative proposal is better than Asa's. It's a little less uh, a minimum uh, a salary, costing uh, costing less. And then it identifies some funds to be set aside to help ease. Uh, uh, the ongoing uh, demands on the budget after after you use the one-time money to start the raises. It's a solid proposal and a solid policy proposal coming after a solid political movement. Just uh, way to go, Democrats. You're not going to get any policy. You're probably not going to win any elections for a while. But uh, you got to keep trying, and, and it's better to try uh, uh, with some savvy than to, than to just flail about. And they're not flailing about on this one. They've got a real issue and they're handling it well. Yeah. We have also seen uh, some numbers move around in terms of um, some concerns from some Republican legislators about what the federal government might claw back, as they call, or recoup uh, from the states uh, if they pass these tax cuts. You had a column on this. I'll let you dive into that a little bit more. But um, the number has moved from for months Legislators were told it's going to be under $100 million potentially. Then all of a sudden they get word it's $800 million plus. And now it seems to be back to zero thanks to a, um, a memo from the Department of Finance Administration. What is a person to believe, John Brumman? Uh, first thing, uh, there's not a great deal of goodwill between the executive administration, the, Hutch the Hutchinson administration, and the legislature. And... Uh, reports like varying reports like this out of his finance administration department do not uh, do not uh, help that uh, I, I don't know what to believe i don't and I, it's a it's a difficult issue mathematically i mean you, you the federal government said here's your here's your uh, relief money uh, uh, for covid don't you can't use it for tax cuts or we'll claw some back here it is after the pandemic is finished when the economy is opened, we're new in, into a new fiscal year. And now we're going to say, well, we just happen to have 1.6 billion. We're going to use some of it for tax cuts. Are you using money that piled up because of the federal assistance? Or are you using your own money? Uh, and that's all tied up in court and, uh, and, and we'll just have to wait. But I don't, if the courts rule that, that you got to pay back in the in a situation like Arkansas, who knows how much it is? Least of all, apparently the DFNA. But I know what the legislatures. I'm, I'm House Speaker said after he got that smaller figure, he said, "Well, this is what uh, this makes us feel better." In other words, this is the one I choose to believe because what they want they're going to cut taxes. I think they'd cut taxes if they were being warned that a billion dollars would be clawed back. Uh, uh, these rascals want to take that income tax rate below 5.0. They want to do it now, and I don't think they can be deterred. So uh, we'll just have to wait for the, we'll just have to get our tax cut, then we wait for the litigation, and then we wait to see how much we have to pay back. But in the meantime, they will have accomplished the policy that is their single priority. They want to, they want a lower income tax rate. They seem to believe that that just makes, that that's just magic for Arkansas. The lower we can get that top, that top rate down in comparison with other states. And uh, maybe... Well, I'm not going to argue that point. I'm just going to say that regardless of the number of which we cannot, about which we can't credibly guess, uh, we're going to, we're going to get the income tax done, but no teacher salaries. 
because teacher salaries are imprudent and uh, cutting income taxes at the risk of having to pay back the federal government an unknown sum is 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 prudent apparently in in this legislature in this in this day and time. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. His conversations with Roby Brock can be found at talkbusiness.net. And 23 years ago, Ozarks at Large was at the opening of the Bobby Hopper Tunnel on what was then I-540. And Bobby Hopper addressed the crowd that day. This is a very special day for the state, the region, and for me personally. It's clear that what this new highway would mean to all of us better assets, increased potential for economic development. But most importantly, this highway provides a safer route for residents, tourists, and travelers. Bobby Hopper speaking at the opening of the Bobby Hopper Tunnel from an Ozarks at Large broadcast in 1999. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on, interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Details on hours, upcoming programs, and more available at amazium.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kells. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Sherry Ottaviano, who is our membership director at KUAF. Sherry, welcome. Hi, thank you. Anna Pope. Hello. Reporter for Ozarks at Large and KUAF. And we're continuing our Appreciation Week, Sherry. Yes, we are. I'm so excited. We want to take the opportunity to express our appreciation for your support today and every day. Members are the fuel that power the music, news, and community conversations that all of us rely on. And we exist to connect people to one another. And the reason... We're doing this all week is because this is Appreciation Week of our members of KUAF. Exactly. This is just a chance for us to take a moment just to say thank you so much for supporting us and for supporting everything that you get to hear on KUAF, from the programs to the podcasts to the music, everything. And what are we doing to show our appreciation? To show our appreciation, uh, normally what we do is we draw one name at the end of the month to send a gift to, but this week we are drawing every single day, Mm -hmm. and we have a winner for today. We'll be sending a special gift just to say thanks. And we have a guest drawer, yes, Anna Pope, who you've been at KUF for three months? uh, I started June 1st. That's my birthday. Yeah. That was a good birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so two months. Two months. And you've already done so much. Y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're covering growth mm-hmm. and how it's affecting both the bigger cities and the rural areas of this area. Yes. And, you know, without our membership support, that would not be possible. And, you know, we serve the community. And what better way to do it than to do something every day for yeah. them? So who are you going to make happy today? I'm going to make happy uh, Sharon and Charles Herrick from Van Buren, Arkansas. All right. Charles and Sharon, you will be receiving a special gift in the mail. Anna, you're an Oklahoman. Yes. A Sooner. Well, okay. Cowboy. Right. I, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know that people outside of Oklahoma call all Oklahoman Sooners mm. as sort of a, but no, if you didn't go to OU, you are an Oklahoman. Yes. Have you been to Van Buren? Because that's darn near Oklahoma. I no, okay. I don't believe so. Okay, we'll get you there. That's okay. You've only been here two months. You can't be everywhere yet. <laughs> yes. I'm thinking train ride. I, oh. Field day train ride. There you go. I'd Arkansas, be down Missouri Railroad. for that. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. So 
uh, we're sending a prize? Yes, we are. To Van Buren. A, a special surprise. Not Just by train. Not by train. <laughs> but we'll take a train soon, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sherry, Anna, thank you both very much. Thank, thank you, you, Kyle. Uh, Appreciate you. This is Ozarks at Large, an appeal by the state of Arkansas to lift a preliminary injunction filed by the American Civil Liberties Union to block an Arkansas law that bans gender-confirming medical care for adolescents is wending through the courts. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich provides a progress report. In the winter of 2021, a law, the first of its kind in the U.S., was passed by the Arkansas General Assembly. Mr. Clerk, read House Bill 1570. House Bill 1570 by Representative Lundstrom to create the Arkansas Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act. Representative Lundstrom, you're recognized to explain the bill. Thank you. HB 1570 prohibits sex change procedures on children. It protects children in Arkansas from mutilation of their genitals and from hormone mutilation of their genitals or puberty blockers. With this bill, anyone 18 or younger would be prohibited from having this procedure done to them. The majority Republican Arkansas legislature voted the bill into law, now Act 626, barring gender-affirming health care to adolescents, any physician caught treating or even referring trans youth for treatment out of state face imprisonment and fines. The health care ban was set to go into effect that summer until ACLU Arkansas requested and obtained a preliminary injunction to block it. The injunction was decided by Federal District Court Judge James Moody, Eastern District of Arkansas. The defendants in the case are Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge, as well as the director and members of the Arkansas State Medical Board. This June, the defendants appealed the injunction on the ban to the Federal Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis. This is audio of Dylan Thomas, Arkansas Deputy Solicitor General, arguing on behalf of defendants, claiming the law makes sense because most trans youth eventually detransition, he says, or return to the gender assigned to them at birth. In a, a large portion of cases, that condition will desist by the time they reach adulthood. Attorney Sarah Everett is policy director at ACLU Arkansas. So the statistics that they give are a little misleading. They say that the majority of children um, ultimately do come to align with their sex assigned at birth. The counter is that a majority of people who identify as trans after they've started puberty, continue to identify as trans into adulthood. So really, most of the youth and treatment doesn't start until after puberty has begun. So most youth who are receiving gender-affirming care will continue to identify as trans into adulthood. Trans youth may struggle with clinical gender dysphoria, a medical and mental health condition characterized by distress caused by an incongruence between a person's gender identity and the sex they were assigned to at birth. 
adolescents in Arkansas rely on gender-affirming medical care, including puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormone therapy. And despite the rhetoric and horror stories tossed around, no one in Arkansas was or is performing gender-affirming genital surgery on trans youth. The medically recommended age for sex reassignment surgery in the U.S. is 18 years and older. Along with three families, as well as two physicians at Arkansas Children's Hospital, 16-year-old Dylan Brandt, assigned female at birth, now transitioning to male, and his mom, Joanna Brandt, are lead plaintiffs in ACLU's lawsuit to block the trans health care ban, a case which has drawn international attention. They agreed to speak together about the case with ACLU attorney Sarah Everett present. Um, I came out when I was 13. I was a few months shy of 14. So he came out in June, um, like he said, right before he turned 14. I think we found um, the Arkansas Children's Hospital Gender Spectrum Clinic when he was about 14 and a half. I think it was that following January that we had the first appointment to just kind of just start talking about what was going on with him and start to get a a professional opinion from uh, a doctor. Both say they're satisfied with Dylan's gender-affirming medical care so far, but are devastated by the state ban. As a mom, it was really hard for me to understand that legislators were now trying to decide removing a parent's ability to make medical decisions for their child just based on the fact that they didn't seem to like it. Dylan, how did the passage of the SAFE Act make you feel? Confused, and I was mad, and I was upset, and I was scared, mostly because I didn't know what was going to happen, and I didn't know what it would mean for me. Chase Strangio, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with ACLU's LGBT HIV Project, argued this point at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals hearing in June. He says that barring gender-affirming health care treatment to adolescents seeking it will have deleterious effects. Expert testimony of, of Dr. Atkins, who is an endocrinologist and a clinical expert in this treatment, talks about how uh, even uh, removing treatment for a short period of time could cause young people to undergo their endogenous puberty and have uh, physical changes that would be impossible uh, to potentially undo. Um, as well as even just the passage of, of, of the act itself, uh, Dr. Hutchison, who's a plaintiff in this case, uh, testified in her declaration that even the passage itself led to multiple suicide attempts of adolescents just based on the fear of losing their treatment. Again, ACLU Arkansas attorney Sarah Everett. Denial of this health care would create a medical and mental health care crisis. It's cruel to force families to scramble and scrounge across the country when we have world-class health care available right here at home. Gender-affirming care for trans youth is life-saving care, and it has the support of medical doctors, including pediatricians and endocrinologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, medical ethicists. Some of whom signed on to amicus briefs in support of banning the law. Including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Academic Pediatric Association, 
the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the uh, American Medical Association, the American Pediatric Society, the American Psychiatric Association, and the Arkansas chapters of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Council on Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Arkansas's SAFE Act, ACLU claims, is unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, discriminating on the basis of sex. A decision by Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis on ACLU's claim and preliminary injunction to block the ban is expected in the coming weeks. The case then returned to Arkansas to Judge Wood's court, who initially granted the stay on the SAFE Act for a final non-jury trial scheduled the week of October 17th to allow for facts to be presented, along with testimony from experts and key witnesses. If we prevail at trial, then the assumption is that the state would appeal that decision to the Eighth Circuit. So then we would have to go back before the Eighth Circuit and argue, um, argue that appeal. And then uh, the decision from the Eighth Circuit could then be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. According to Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law, because of government effort over the past two years, more than 58,000 transgender youth and young adults across 15 states are in jeopardy of losing access to gender-affirming health care. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Figure 5. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich. Our thanks to Lee Wood, KUAF General Manager, for her coordination with the live recording for the R Word podcast that took place last week at St. James Missionary Baptist Church in Fayetteville. And thanks to Daniel Carruth for going into our archives for the voice of Bobby Hopper from 1999. You can hear Daniel deliver news from our region and state every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30 from the Karen Taha News Studio during Morning Edition. Our theme, written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find us at OzarksAtLarge.com. Thanks for being here. I'm Kyle Kellums.